All right, let's do this. Once a week, we get a chance as a family to hear the preaching of the gospel. My aim is to be as faithful as I can to the words of Scripture and to you so that you may understand and believe and live differently because of God's grace and God's truth to us. Your job is to listen, but listen active, not passive. Be thinking, be believing, be seeking to hear. You're also submitting to me. I get to be the one talking. You get to be the one listening. But this is how Jesus has done it, both to bind us together and to humble you, that you have to listen to a sinner talk to you for the next few minutes. Um, but he promises to meet us in this place. So let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll do it together. Father, thank you. You know our weakness and our need that we need to hear over and over and over again who you are, what you've done, what you require, what you've provided, and what that means for us. You brought us here this morning, so we give ourselves fully to you, body and mind and heart, and I pray that you would meet us in these moments that we have together. So hear our prayer for that, I ask. Amen. All right, let me start here today. One of the gospel truths that we are coming to see together by the help of Jesus is that we desperately need and deeply love the church. Both desperately need and are coming to deeply love the church. Let me give you a little juxtaposition to press this point with you. Okay, so I'll begin with a confession. I am the worst member in the history of the Melrose YMCA Saturday morning spin class. There's this little church that meets every Saturday morning at 8.30 at the Melrose Y. It's not called a church, though it's called a spin class, but I'm telling you it's a church. There's a pastor. Her name is Lisa. She has lots of energy. She greets everyone when they come in and they find their seat. Everybody sits in the same row every single time that they come, the same corner. There's a liturgy that we move through. There's music. We don't have them. Some churches, too, do. There's lasers in this little church that shoot around at different points of the service. She yells at everyone for about 30, 40 minutes, and they take it. Everybody does their thing, and then after about an hour or so, everybody leaves and goes home. My membership in this class is one of pure utilitarianism. I am there completely out of self-interest. I go when I feel like it. I don't go when I don't feel like it. Sometimes I get there late. Sometimes I leave when we're only halfway done. I just take off. Lisa probably doesn't like me very much because I don't listen to much that she's saying. I don't know if you've been in this experience, but they're giving you directions. We're on a hill now. Third position. Everybody stand up. Then there's this one guy on the spike going, nope. <laughs> Everybody's up, but this lanky, red-faced guy, he's still seated. Sometimes I wear a hoodie to the class, and I keep it on like this, so I don't have to see anybody, and nobody's got to see me. One time I smuggled headphones in under the hoodie. 
I was listening to a John Piper sermon during spin class, and I'm hitting like a buck 90 of RPMs. She doesn't know what's going on up there. I almost never talk to anybody around me except Grace. That's why I go, so I can get some more time with her on Saturday morning. Why am I this way? In my heart, I know I don't need this spin class for my eternal soul. And there's a lot of stuff I love to do. I'm beginning to enjoy it, but I'm not there yet, like, loving being on that bike. Whatever the opposite is of all in, this is my disposition toward the spin class. Another confession. This one's much worse. That is exactly how I was with church for the first year or so of our marriage. Barely went, talked to nobody, listened but distractedly, gave pathetically and sparingly. I didn't love the place, and I was not seeing my need for the church. But then, in his grace, as he does, by his spirit, Jesus began to show me that there are some institutions in our life that we can be barely in on or halfway in on, but Jesus' church, his blood-bought bride, his family, the, the buttress and pillar of the truth, this is not one of them we desperately need and should deeply love the church. This is how old school Saint Cyprian said it. It's a simple, powerful phrase. He said, you cannot have God as your father if you will not also have the church as your mother. Uh, John Calvin, much wordier, took this sentence as he tends to do and made it like six paragraphs. But I want you to hear this with me. It's totally worth it. He says it like this. By faith in the gospel, Christ becomes ours, and we are made partakers of salvation and eternal blessedness. That's like a 1500s phrase that just warms my soul, eternal blessedness. But as our ignorance and sloth and vanity stand in need of help, God, in accommodation to our weakness, has added such help and secured the preaching of the gospel by depositing this treasure within the church. He has appointed pastors and teachers by whose lips he might edify the people. He has invested them with authority. And in particular, he has instituted sacraments which we feel by experience to be a most useful help in confirming and strengthening our faith. These are housed in the church in whose bosom God is pleased to collect his children. And then finally he gets to Cyprian's one sentence, to those whom God is father, the church must also be mother. You feel that? In other words, this thing right here is a gift from God to you that you need bad and that you should begin to love. 
Now, there's a hundred reasons for that. There's only one that we're hitting on today, and it's this one. The church is where the sacraments are. The church is where the sacraments are. Uh, In the Reformation, the Reformers had to do some work on what is a true church. What are the marks of a true church? They were struggling under the corruption and the heresies of the established church centered in Rome. They had taken the wicked, bright glory of the gospel and hid it under superstitions and legalisms. And you had to dig your way through all that junk to get to gospel. And they were tired of it. And so they said, we need to reform the church. And if it means leaving the church, that's what we have to do. Those in the church said, you can't leave the church. The church is everything that I just said to you. And they said, this is no longer a true church. And that begged the question, well, what is a true church? So they came up with three marks of the church. One of them, the middle one, was this. A church, a true church is one where the sacraments are rightly administered. A sacrament is a means of God's grace to you and to me. And they've been given to the church by Jesus to mark us out as belonging to him and to build us up and strengthen us in the faith. We've been given two sacraments. Baptism is one of them. The other is this meal that we share up here together every Sunday morning, this meal. This meal has more names than um, Eminem. You know how he has like seven different names? You didn't know that? Do you need me to list them out for you? She knows about it. This meal goes by many different names. Holy Communion, have you heard that? Um, The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, maybe you've heard it phrased that way. We just like to call it the table. This meal, whatever you call it, is a means of God's grace to us. And if we're going to be a strong church together, we need to see that we need it, to love sharing it, but also to make sure that we are doing this right. That means having good answers to two questions. Here they are. Number one, what is Jesus' table? And then number two, who should be coming to Jesus' table? If we're going to be a strong church and do this right, we need to be on the same page with these questions. All right, so let's hit the text together. We'll find a few answers. The words that Katie read are from a letter written to a church like ours in a city, not Boston, a city called Corinth. And this church was administering the sacrament all wrong, all wrong. They had people simultaneously living in big time sin and coming to the table, living in big time sin and coming to the table. And I mean big time sin. There was flagrant sexual sin in the life of the church. Specifically, a man was living and sleeping with his, mother, his father's wife, and then on the Lord's day, coming down to the table. Christians were suing each other, taking each other to court, and then coming to the table. Some people were actually getting blasted on Jack in the potluck before the service, and then coming to the service, wasted, and then coming down to the table. There were cliques forming, the rich here, the poor there, we sit here, you sit there, but then everyone was coming to the table. In these words, the Spirit 
is stopping them in their tracks and saying, hold on, that is not how the table works. All right, let's go through the words together and then I'll pull out a couple of big ideas for you. In the following, I do not commend you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you despise the church of God? Shall I commend you in this? No way. And then, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, let's pull some big ideas out of those words, but those are the important words. Here's number one. This meal is Jesus' idea. Each of the Gospels reports the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. In those accounts, we see the origins of what we just read to the Corinthians. Jesus broke bread and said, this is my body, eat this, it's for you. He poured out the cup, he said, this is my blood, drink this, it's for you. What I want you to feel is the spirit of that phrase, do this. Did everyone hear it? Do this, do this. This is why we call a sacrament an ordinance. It was ordained personally by Jesus. This means that Jesus desires for us to share this meal together and to benefit from the grace that he holds out here. The best we can tell from the earliest records, that's exactly what the early church did. They obeyed Jesus. They reenacted this supper over and over again. In fact, it looks like they did it every day in the first months of the life of the church. That's one of the reasons we tend to do this almost every time we are together, right? Hey, Jesus said to do this, that we would benefit from it. We love and trust him. He's our shepherd. Let's do this. We're in. All right, number two, this meal belongs to the church. Did you hear it in the first part of this? When you come together as a church, if you read all of 1 Corinthians 11, you would see that said multiple times. We are sharing this meal as a church because that's how the sacraments work. They are to be administered in the context of, under the authority of the church. Um, Same with baptism. So we were doing a membership interview with somebody who loved Jesus and was a part of our church. And we said, have you ever been baptized? And she said, yes. And we said, great. What church? Where was it? When did this happen? And she said, oh, no church. My dad baptized me in the bathtub. And we had this beautiful conversation about the nature of the sacraments and of the church. And she was so thrilled to come into the life of the church through the sacrament of baptism. We don't just baptize people on our own. 
we do it in the context of the church. It's the same thing with this table up here. We don't take communion in our backyard. We don't do it when we meet somebody at Panera Bread. This meal is an ecclesiological meal. It is to be done in the context of the church. Now, of course, there's exceptions to this rule. Communion in a nursing home with saints who can't get to be with us, someone who's long-term in a hospital. Rules always have godly exceptions to them. But as a general rule, this is an act of public worship. This is for the gathered family of those who believe Jesus. If you are a part of Seven Mile Road, we eat tons of meals together, right? So it's Keller's first birthday, and I don't know how they fit all these people in their first floor apartment, but there was several hundred people celebrating his birthday. And I ate this thing called a breakfast burrito. Have you heard of this? Oh, man, it was vicious. I loved it. It was great. We didn't have communion at 11 a.m. on Saturday. That meal is for this setting and this context. When you come together as a church. All right, next thing. This meal is simple. Did everyone see that in the text? Jesus said, eat this bread, drink this cup. That's it. When I was in middle school, we lived in Boston, and it was New Year's Eve, and we're like, we're going out on the town. My mother had been given a $75 gift certificate, which sounded like a lot of money to us, to the Omni Parker House Hotel in Boston. Did you hear the little, ooh. So this place puts the fancy in fancy pants. We did not know this at the time. So we thought, $75, man, we're going to eat like kings. So we go over, take the orange line in from Everett, and uh, walk into the Omni Parker house. And we're dressed okay, you know what I mean? Like middle class family, but we had some suits. We walk into this place, and right away we go, oh, no. It wasn't even chairs. It was like this circular cushiony bench that they sat us on. There was like 17 utensils just at my place setting, just for me. And they handed us a menu, but there was two problems with it. No prices anywhere at all. No dollar signs. And not even any options. They told you here's what you will be eating for New Year's Eve dinner. And like duck and some other weird stuff was on there. So just when they were bringing the water out to us, we kind of looked at each other and said, "Uh, I don't think $75 is going to be enough. So we left. And my little brother was the loud one in the family at the time. And he says to the maitre d', he says, hey, we might look like money. We have money, but we don't. And we just went to like some Italian place in the North End and had a great New Year's Eve thing. Uh, do you feel the fancy pantsness of that meal? Seven courses, all these bells and whistles. This is not the meal that Jesus has given to us. He has given us a meal that is accessible in all cultures. Everybody's got bread, unless you're doing TB12. But other than that, everybody's got bread. Every culture has wine or grape drink of some sort. This was his way of saying, my gospel is for the nations, and it is not a fancy pants gospel. This is not complicated. Bread and cup, that is my meal. But don't be deceived by the simplicity of this. Just because it's simple elements 
does not mean that there is not massive power to this meal. You guys know J.R.R. Tolkien somehow wrote the Lord of the Rings without control Z or a word processor. How did he do that? Anyway, he was a devout Catholic, went to Mass every morning, and uh, wrote the bread into his Lord of the Rings story. It appears as the Lembus bread that the elves gave to the travelers. And the hobbits were so confused by this. This little bread that fits in my pouch, that's all I need to eat, and I'm good for like a week of walking through Mordor. How does this food do that? This beautiful thread through the story that just this little lembus bread sustains them all the way to Mount Doom. Does everybody feel that? Don't be deceived by the smallness of the bread and the cup up here. There is gospel power and grace in this meal to sustain you to the end with Jesus. And then one more thing, this meal remembers and proclaims the cross. This meal remembers and proclaims the cross. Did you hear it? My body broken. My blood poured out. These elements represent the brutal price that was paid to ransom you from sin. When we eat, it's a mental exercise. Remember, remember the price that was paid Remember what happened to Jesus' body. The thorns, the nails, the asphyxiation, the spear, the blood, the body, torn and broken. Remember that. But don't just remember it. That's not only what this meal is. We are proclaiming this. When we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are saying, Yes to the gospel that has the cross at the center of it. You are saying yes to the truth that this had to go down if your sins were going to be forgiven. Do you feel that? That means that this meal is serious. It is not to be taken lightly breezy, cavalier. This is not Saturday morning spin class. Come and go as you please. We should get this intuitively, right? So Grace and I were doing uh, 40th birthday down at Miami Beach. Just had this wonderful time together. One of the things that we did while we were there is swung by the Holocaust memorial that they have built there. There's a big Jewish community in that city. Um, It's this heart-stopping, breathtaking thing that they have done with some artists remembering the murder of millions of men and women who bore the image of God in the Holocaust. So we went to see this, and yes, we were in, you know, flip-flops, and I was in shorts, and Grace was in a sundress, but there was nothing cavalier about our time there. And I remember seeing some trash on the ground and getting, like, angry. Who throws a coffee cup on the ground near this, this, this work of gruesome art remembering the horrors of the Holocaust? It's not right to be cavalier around something representing 
something so sacred and precious. Do you feel that? It's the same way like this woman down in Florida who tweeted her way through her abortion. I don't know if you saw that, but she wanted to show that it was no big deal, and so she took a selfie in the lobby, and she took a picture with the doctor, and she took a picture of the the device that would gouge the baby out of her, and she was all fine and good. And I remember grieving the flippancy, the, the cavalierness of the murder of a little baby bearing the image of God. You don't tweet that. You, you feel the seriousness of these things? You, you give me your own example. Now, I want you to take that and ramp it up infinitely, and you're getting the depth of what this meal represents and what we are proclaiming here. The Son of God, holy, sinless, innocent, murdered by sinners for sin, slaughtered like a lamb. This meal is not to be taken lightly. And yet that is exactly what the church in Corinth was doing, strolling in, like flip-flops and sandals, cavalier, living in sin, but coming down and proclaiming the atonement of sin. And so, of course, it's no surprise what comes next in the text. Two similar warnings. This is a sandwich. Let's feel the two warnings first. Here they were. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And then again, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning what's happening here, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, I often try to tell you that if you're reading your Bible and you're not surprised and caught off guard and blown away, you're not reading it right. That's the norm. Today, it's the opposite. These are the least surprising verses in the Bible that you would hear what this meal is and then that you would get these two warnings. You're supposed to read these and go, of course, of course, these words of the Spirit were meant to stop the Corinthians in their tracks, that they would pause and realize the way that you are coming to this meal is not okay. Christ died to forgive sin. You can't waltz down here living in sin. To not discern would be wrong and it would be dangerous. Of course. So feel those words of Scripture. Now, if the sermon ended there and that was all that the Spirit had to say to us about this truth, we, we might go, okay, then I think the best idea is for me to Stop coming down to this meal. If it's so serious and dangerous and intense, maybe the remedy is just like, okay, so I'll pass. I I could see someone coming to that conclusion if all you had was what I've said so far. But to think that way would be to completely misunderstand the nature of these two warnings These warnings are not meant to drive you away from the table. They're meant to prepare you to rightly come. Everybody feel that? The warnings are not meant to drive you away from this means of grace, but to prepare you 
to rightly come. And that is exactly what we see in the verse that is sandwiched by the two warnings. Hear this with me. Let a person examine himself. And so, come, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In the middle of those warnings is this beautiful, beautiful double command. Let a person examine himself then. And so, eat and drink. Feel the two commands in here. The first is to examine yourself. This does not mean to look at your week and if there was any sin at all, you're not qualified to come to the table. No. There's a reason we lead with call, confession, and gospel. We begin our worship service being forgiven all over again of our sin. It's covered by Jesus. You're not supposed to hesitate because you are a sinner to come down to this means of grace. You're exactly who needs it. You're supposed to take a 10,000-foot look at your life and ask the question, is there evidence that I am all in with Jesus? That there's no part of my life that I haven't surrendered to him? That I am not ashamed of the gospel of the brutal death of Christ in my place for my sins? Am I all in with Jesus or not? That's the examining that we want you all to do before coming to the table. And then, what is the second command up here? What is it? Come, eat, drink. The warnings bookend a welcome. Usually when someone draws a line in the sand, why do they do that? It's because they don't want you to cross it, right? Yeah. How many people grew up having to share a room with a brother or a sister? That's it? This must be America. Some of us? All right. Some of us are suffering through that reality right now on this side of the church. Okay, so we've got Julia and Callie in one room, and we've got Brandon and Matt in the other room. Brandon and Matt are like two ships that pass in the night. You know how that works with teenage boys? Like, they look like each other, but they, they live in the same house? Wow. Julia and Callie are different. They're super tight friends most of the time. And then like, oh man, someone's going to die tonight on those other moments. So every now and then they go find construction tape and they put this line, you know, down the center of the room. Only Julia's in charge, so like Callie has an eighth of the room and she has seven eighths of the room. When they put that line down, there's about 24 hours where there is serious physical danger if anyone toes over that line. That's usually what we think of by line in the sand. That is not the spirit of this text. Here's the spirit of this text. There is this line in the sand, and we long for you to cross it. You feel the difference? We're going to stop you, but not to hold you back, to prepare you to enter in. One of the ways that theologians talk about this truth, this doctrine, is using the word fencing the table. I don't know if anyone would have heard that before. Fencing the table. Because of the seriousness of this meal, we put a fence around the table. Um, I get it. I've never liked that because when I think of a fence, I think of something that is meant to keep you out. Um, And that's not this. So about... 
10 years ago, I almost got arrested in Melrose on Lebanon Street. Uh, Matt was five, Brandon was three, and they were doing construction on this park around the corner from our house. And there was this giant fence with all these warning signs on it. And no gate to this fence, just fence. But inside was the greatest mountain of dirt that you have ever seen in your life. And I felt that it would be inappropriate for me as a father to not take my five and three-year-old boys onto this mountain of dirt. Like, there it is. Oh, man. So we walked around the fence up into the woods so that we could get onto this pile of dirt. So we are having the time of our lives. The boys are filthy and loving it. You've seen the movie, uh, the show Cops. Is that still on? All of a sudden, these cops come flying in like there's a drug bust or something. Lights flashing, pull up to the gate, coming out, guns, batons. Starts yelling at me and the boys. Pulls me onto the street and just berates me about the danger that I had let him into. And didn't I see the fence and everything? And I was as polite as I could be. But I said, sir, but I have five and three-year-old boys and there was a giant pile of dirt for them to play in. And eventually, he, he let me go. That is not the spirit of this text, that we are hiding this glorious means of grace behind some fence, and we don't want you in. If you want to think fence, do it. But think fence with a gate, with a big sign that says, hey, something glorious, spectacular, sustaining, is available to you here. It is meant for you to participate in, but not to be taken lightly. So pause. Take an inventory of the big picture of your life. Have you trusted Christ? Are you fighting sin that he bled for? Are you committed to and love his church? If the answer to those things are yes, then swing that door open and come. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. All right, so here's our answer to that last question. Who should be coming to this meal? Who is it for? Any sinner who has turned and continues to turn from sin in faith toward Christ. That's who this is for. If that's not you yet, it's okay. Nobody in this space is ever going to judge anyone else for not coming down to the table when we share this meal. What we're trying to do is be clear that we love you so much and so long for you to come to this meal, but want to shepherd you to come to it rightly. That's why we gate the table briefly each week so that you would know you are invited, but if you are not there yet, there is no pressure for you to come and share this meal. If that is you, Come and welcome to Christ. If you sin seven times this week, come and welcome to Christ. If you need to add some zeros to that number right there, 70, 700, come and welcome to the means of grace. If you are weak, come and welcome to strength. If you are depressed, come and welcome to joy. 
however fragile you are, what you need is what Christ provides. So come and welcome. And if you have never repented of your sin before and put your trust in Christ and turned away from your sin, do that now and come and welcome to Christ. We'll get you baptized on Easter Sunday morning, but come now and receive the grace that Jesus holds out for you at this table. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your tender love for us. Thanks for the helps that you have given to us. It's such good news. Thanks that you've given us not only gospel, but bread and cup, proclaiming gospel to sustain us. Thanks that as surely as we eat this bread and drink this cup, that's how surely we know our sins are gone. We are adopted into the family of God. Our future is super bright, and we're going to be sustained all the way down by the grace of Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. We receive it together today. Amen. All right, we're going to come eat. Keep those words in mind. The band will be teaching us how to also sing together. But come believing, come rejoicing, come feasting so that your soul may be strong for this journey. And we'll spend the rest of our time rejoicing in the grace of God to us. You can stand with us. We like to come down and get the elements, take them back to our seat, and then all eat together at the same time. One Savior, one Spirit, one table, one family, one meal together. All right, let's stand and do that.